Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as usual with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi, Tim. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to start a series of, at, mo- at the moment, indeterminate length about Cuba and Cuban music. And this is part of our more general, the more general big series that we're doing at the moment, which is still sort of on Afro psychedelia, although Afro psychedelia has a pretty expansive. Uh, meaning now we've just finished a a series on jamaican music in the 60s and 70s up to 75 and we think it's pretty obvious that dub and reggae made an important contribution to what we would call the afro psychedelic aesthetic which feeds into both psychedelic jazz and disco and later house music in the 70s and 80s uh, so within that context, if you've not listened to the earlier episodes in the series, then um, we uh, very much encourage you to do so. And today we're going to start talking about Cuba. Now, Tim and I thinking about Cuba sort of has uh, quite a long history. I remember years ago when we were de- we designed a taught undergraduate course about music for students. I remember we were very pleased with this set of lecture topics we'd come up with and we were talking about what was the one thing we'd do if we had one more week to play with, which we didn't. And we thought, oh, we'd do Cuba. We'd do Latin America. And we've sort of, and Cuba has, and thinking a lot about Cuba has always been a a bit of the periphery of our sort of shared uh, imagination, our shared uh, thinking about music. And I guess partly that's probably why, on the one hand, neither of us feel like we're really experts on this stuff, although we have wanted to become such for years. And, you know, I, I think so far in the making of this podcast, this is the first time that we've really started reading around a subject and really come just started to feel frustrated that we don't have more time than we do to spend on it. Because there's a we found some really interesting books, we've started reading them, we've um, sort of filling out our knowledge. And I think essentially our intuition that there was a lot to say about Cuba that isn't normally said outside of very specialist uh, publications or outlets that are focusing on Cuba Latin music has turned out to be totally correct. Mm-hmm. Our, our intuition that we're really, that it's a really fascinating history and that it's really mm-hmm. quite very central as we have commented before, when we've talked about Latin jazz, that it is really central to the history of the kind of music that we're interested in uh, has really been borne out. So um, we're not sure how long it's going to take to get through this stuff. We're not sure how much. We may just be scratching the surface. We may be able to get fairly in-depth. Hopefully, we'll steer a happy medium between the two. But I think we're going to. Tim is going to start now with talking a bit about the general background to so the, the history of the island. And we will we will carry on from there. So, Tim, why don't you start us off? Um, yeah, well, and before some... we're yeah, I mean, you're, what you say about the um, genesis of, of of this is is correct. I do. There was a, certainly a point where that that undergraduate course did change a bit, and uh, additional weeks were introduced on sort of Latin American music. Uh, one week, anyway, it was really uh, somewhat tokenistic, but then it was also a kind of 
it wasn't yeah it must have been around that time maybe it was just a few years earlier there was i met this guy ned sublet and uh he he was one of arthur russell's mates actually he was a uh, new york musician and downtown uh composer who interestingly the kind of at the other end of that kind of scene um, i'm forgetting the exact dates uh, when this all happened to ned but he ended up becoming a, a salsaholic and also went on from being a musician to also uh, writing a number of major books. In his first, uh, there was there was one on New Orleans, there was uh, one on, on, uh, on slavery, but his first major book was on Cuba. And the first time I met him, um, which was also a, a meeting, and funnily enough, that kind of prompted me to even go ahead and, and write that Arthur book, because I just met Ned and he sort of emerged pretty quickly. He was a mate of Arthur Russell and he, he was the one who said, oh, well, I can introduce you to... Peter Gordon and Peter Zemo, these people who were very close with Arthur and that set that whole thing running. But anyway, at this conference, Ned had given this pretty explosive talk on, on Cuban uh, music. This was the EMP conference in Seattle, the experience was then known as the Experience Music Project Conference. It was a kind of pop, a pop, uh, sorry, an academia meets journalist, journalism kind of conference. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, Ned was putting, to, had either just published or was about to publish his big book on Cuba. Uh, I think it's just called Cuba and its music. And it, part of his argument is to, was, is to say that popular music uh, written in the second half of the 20th century, uh, quite specifically, that's when a lot of this history has been written, usually describes American music in terms of black and white. Uh, and this is kind of one of the ways that we had probably come into seeing an awful lot of the ways that we understood music, including white musicians being inspired by black music and then, you know, in different different modes uh, appropriating that music and what Neb was saying is that the elephant in the in the living room uh, was Cuba and that uh, Cuba needs to be regarded as uh, what he, he describes in, in, in this book as the other great tradition of fundamental music of the new world uh, it's uh, and you can hear its influence he argues in classical music ragtime tango jazz rhythm and blues country rock and roll funk and hip-hop to say nothing of salsa and we could have to say nothing of disco and house and a whole bunch of other genres as well, but you get you get the point. And Ned sort of maintains, and I sort of mentioned this because we have just spent six weeks discussing Jamaican music from a 10-year period, and, and Ned maintains that uh, Cuban music surpasses the influence of other Caribbean music by some distance, however important those other sounds have been. And that it's been mainly unrecognized in the United States. This is a book written, I guess, 20 years ago anyway, but he said it's largely unrecognized in the United States, in part because it's been sung in, it's sung in Spanish, uh, but uh, perhaps more so because of the revolution and the subsequent embargo. Um, and uh, Ned also sort of cites kind of early on this uh, you know, very highly respected New York Times music critic, Robert Palmer, who published a, uh, an article in Spin uh, in 1988 called The Cuba Connection. And um, in that article, Robert Palmer um, describes his kind of, you know, beginning to explore Cuban music for the first time, effectively. And he says that um, the history of American music since World War II was, was in need of serious revision. And Palmer uh, notes how he tracked down the most common bass and saxophone riff in 50s rock and roll. Uh, back to its originator, Dave Bartholomew, uh, who in turn told him that he had nicked um, 
that uh, bass and saxophone riff from a Cuban rumba record. And indeed, the as we'll come on to maybe a bit later in the show or whenever we get to it, uh, Richard Berry, the composer of the track Louis Louis, one of the great rock and roll tracks, told him, uh, this is Robert Palmer still, uh, that the, that song's origin was also an obscure Cuban cha-cha record. So we have this kind of, this is the kind of, just to kind of develop some of this kind of huge background to this show and, of course, to the topic, that this is kind of this... This music that's had this incredible influence, but the, since the you know the introduction of the embargo is it in 1960, that uh, you know Cuba was just kind of erased from you know American history. I think there was even the point that if an Ameri- if a U.S. musician covered a Cuban record during that that period, uh, they didn't have to pay any rights, and that the the they didn't even, they weren't expected to to credit the songwriter either. Uh, that was always written as a kind of, you know, anonymous songwriter. So there was this kind of erasure of Cuban culture in many respects in this period, including the music. So this is, this has been somewhat, has been somewhat set right uh, since Robert Palmer, Nitzablet, and a whole bunch of other, you know, musicologists and music historians, many of, them, many of them also obviously Cuban, have been kind of uh, writing up this history. But it's, it's one that had been missed out for quite a while. But of course, one of the things, you know, with Cuba is that uh, it, it links us into this, you know, history of African music and and African diasporic music that's been the, the focus of, of, you know, pretty much this entire third Afro-diasporic series. And the sort of the beginning of, of, of you know, the Western uh, discovery of Cuba goes back to Columbus, uh, who discovered in inverted commas Cuba uh, in 1492. Uh, Spanish colonization began in 1510. And then King Carlos of Spain started to introduce black slaves from 1527. So um, I think it's um, one of the things I'm believe is that yeah i'm sure of actually is that more slaves uh, african slaves ended up going to cuba than the entirety of north america for example uh, in part this was because sugar was a lot more precarious as a as a product to manufacture than cotton um so just the slaves were dying much more quickly and needed to be replaced with other slaves um which is a pretty one of many obviously horrendous stories around that history I did end up sort of going back to some of what Ned Sublet kind of wrote about that. And he's very clear um, that the overwhelming number of slaves, uh, at least in the, you know, that arrived in Cuba, came from the Congo. And that as a result, when we hear, you know, when we start to listen to and try and analyse Cuban music, in, in, in a sense, the first layer of that, of, of that music uh, of Afro-Cuban culture is derived from the Congo. And, you know, Sublet says you can detect the influence of the Congo in all of the important genres of African Cuban dance music, uh, from the creolized contradanza to the rumba to the sun to the street dance called the Congo. So Congo is this sort of first, you know, this first kind of key influence on on Cuban music and, and culture. The second, which is kind of less discussed, but, you know, and almost as profound as the influence of Yoruba, onto Cuban culture and uh, the Yoruban people, culture and religion uh, started to arrive in Cuba, I think from the early 17th century onwards. 
the Yoruban culture itself is quite complex. I'm learning about this in doing some of the reading for this episode. So Yoruban culture kind of evolved out of an area in Niger, Banu, uh, in Africa, and seems to have really taken root uh, roughly between 1000 and 1400 AD. Uh, the holy city of the Yorubans uh, is the forest city of Ife-Ile, and the Yoruban culture, interestingly, because this goes on to influence, uh, amongst other things, Cuban culture, uh, is penetrated by both Islam as well as polyrhythmic Africa. Um, I mean, the other thing to note is that Yoruba is an external coinage. Uh, it wasn't internally used by the Yoruban people, but it's externally used to describe the Oyo kingdom. And Oyo culture was uh, polytheistic. I mean, reading about it reminded me an awful lot about kind of what's written about kind of the Greek gods, actually. Uh, so the Yoruban religion venerates a pantheon of deities known as the Arishas. Uh, and these complex personalities, uh, Ned Sublet notes, are known to every Cuban. And there is one point where Ned says, if you're just if you're not interested in uh, Yoruban religion and the Orishas, then you you know Cuban music really isn't for you because they are constantly referenced within Cuban music and the Cuban music uh, Cuban many many if not most Cuban musicians also identify uh, as being uh, you know uh, followers of Yoruba. Um, so one of the you know there's many gods. One of them that's you know quite well known and actually is even referenced in this there's this record uh love and happiness a louis vega production or masters of work maybe it's louis vega uh featuring india that was my alter you know the record i loved the most when i was kind of 26 or something and uh indeed this is kind of a re- there's lots of references to yoruban religion and yemaya there it's, like, it's one of the yemaya the mother of the of the world the goddess of salt of water and the sea uh, the protector of fishermen syncretized with the black madonna so she's one of these very popular saints or santos in cuba so it's a polytheistic religion and also the yorubans were also drum masters and because in oyo there was royal patronage for the drums so this was you know royal sponsored music basically was drumming it meant that you know this music became highly developed um, because it was being kind of paid for uh, over a period of time. And within this, the bata drums, which were a set of three-hour glass-shaped drums hollowed out of a trunk of wood, are the key kind of uh, key instrument uh, for this repertoire, which is based on these intricate polyrhythms um, with have six principal pitches, and they sound like a sharp crack. Again, it's like how these drums sound. It's kind of very important for the rhythm they generate and the aesthetic they generate. Uh, and Ned, Ned Sublet says that the repertoire of the batter drums uh, is the great classical music of Africa and one of the great classical musics of the world. Um, and this was taken over by the, uh, the Yorubans, by the Oya, by the Yorubans to, to Cuba. And so it arrived in Cuba already experienced also in the art of syncretization. And it goes through further syncretization in Yoruba that is also particularly important again for the music that follows. So this syncretization happens in, in what's known as Santeria. Uh, the great flowering of Santeria came uh, at the end of slavery in the late 19th century. Uh, and what this involved is Yoruban religion integrating elements of Roman Catholicism and Spiritism and then becoming Santeria, this new, newly formed syncretic um, Cuban-based, as far as I'm aware, uh, religion. 
and the combined, as I said, Yoruba and Catholicism and, and uh, Spiritism. And there's no central authority within Santeria. Uh, Santeria is so it's a religion. It's a danced religion um, uh, within, you know, um, ceremonies. Uh, one of these Orishas, these saints, may come down because they're, they're considered to be uh, also to take a human and living form. And uh, may come down, so the saints might come down and you know exert a certain act of possession, uh, which mirrors also Haitian voodoo and also Pentecostalism in the United States. You know this idea of going to a religious ceremony and becoming possessed by spirits and the music. Um, so um, the other thing to note is that because Santa Rea became this hugely popular religion, so I think again peaked at in late 19th century and it's a danced religion and it meant that musicians um, these people we're interested in uh, would often be able to earn more would earn uh, more of a living from performing at religious ceremonies uh, than in secular dances so again it's about this kind of embedment of, of a certain certain styles of, of, of musicianship and in particular percussion playing uh, around a religious experience that could, you know, could take possession of dancers becomes absolutely central to to Cuban. In addition to you know this, these these traditions, in particular of drums that come from the Congo. So I'm just going to throw in one one line from Ned that came that sort of came out of the conclusion of this particular bit, which is. Um, I'll quote it. He says, the Catholic Church, what Ned notes is, the Catholic Church has historically been a notorious enemy of the drum, viewing it quite rightly as central to the practice of African religion. Indeed, in the Roman versus African opposition we see in microcosm, the schism of music in the modern world. The technical superstructure that we call classical music is built on the kernel of the Gregorian chant whereas the world's popular music is built from the drum. In Cuba, the survival of the drum, albeit clandestinely, allowed African music to negotiate with European music on more favourable terms than in places where drums are exterminated. So this big development that is able to develop, you know, in Cuba, where, you know, European practices, you know, are able to merge with African practice in particular through uh, Yoruba and Santeria and we're in ways that just weren't able to kind of happen in, in quite the same way in the United States and, and the UK. And it sort of helps us understand why Cuban music in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is so uh, advanced and goes on to exert this incredibly powerful influence on, on the world. Yeah, that's very persuasive. I mean, should, should we play so a, a bit of Santeria music? Yes. The album is called Santeria, Santeria, Songs for the Orishas. It's a 1998 compilation on soul jazz, and it is, there's a track called Oshun, which I've, I've played at parties once or twice. Yeah, that's a good an example of a relatively recently recorded uh, example of, San, of Santeria music, and you can certainly hear like how, how how compelling it is. 
I mean, that's all very interesting. Yeah, it's very persuasive. I mean, this idea of the uh, the sort of ethereality of the Gregorian chant contrasted with the corporeality of the of the drum, the African drum, is is really is really interesting. Yeah. It's also the role of that drum in kind yeah. of in the you know the organisation of kind of religious experience. Um, that enables it to become this kind of, you know, very advanced. But then within Cuba, it starts to combine this, you know, syncretize with, with indeed elements of, you know, Catholic culture and, you know, the Europe, European culture that's been, you know, imported into that country from Spanish influence, etc. So this is the, this becomes a hotbed for uh, these two traditions to kind of develop and, and to develop this conversation in a way that wasn't as advanced in, in other, in other parts where, African religions were given, you know, and, and culture was given much less room to kind of breathe for all sorts of, you know, transparent reasons. Yes, I wonder how much this is something that's really, I wonder to what extent the unique qualities of this music, sort of Caribbean and Brazilian music, have to do with that question, actually, of how, of this, of the relative survival of the religious dimensions of African music. I suppose you would in, could include New Orleans, some of the music from New Orleans in that configuration. I've, I've been reading the Timothy Brennan book, Secular Devotion, which is about the a sort of his, which is another history of uh, Afro Latin music. And he made, I think, I think he makes the point. It might, I can't remember now. It's either his book or Michael Denning's book. They make the point that strong case that New Orleans is is a a Caribbean city, and they you sort you would have to include New Orleans in this zone but one of the things that characterize and this is true of new orleans i know one of the things that characterizes all of those zones is indeed uh, at remnants of traditional religious you know religious practice or shamanic and possession-based religious practice weren't as totally suppressed and totally replaced by protestantism as they were like in other parts of the united states yeah there's a whole tradition of mardi gras in new orleans yeah 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 no so, so yeah go on well, Voudon, well, this is something, I mean, Voudon was uh, still was pretty much considered like a, a pretty respectable and accepted part of, of New Orleans life up until the early 20th century. Like it was just never, it was never subject to the kind of violent repression. It would have been in places like Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, the places like that. It just, that's, it just didn't happen, mainly because New Orleans, I mean, New Orleans was French for a long, for a long time. And then you know, it retained a lot of that distinctive character that it wasn't um, it, that it wasn't subject to the same forms of repression. I and mean, if you really want to get into the kind of if you really want to get into some of the history, of course, I mean, some historians of religion would say that you know Ned's being a bit hard on the Catholics there because one of the things that's going on in a lot of those places is because Catholicism has this almost polytheistic tradition of saint worship, for example. It, that, it, that Catholicism provides a framework within which people are able to retain some of these polytheistic practices and beliefs in a way that places where Protestantism, forms of Protestantism are the dominant form of Christianity, absolutely won't tolerate them and that they're, they're completely suppressed. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Well, I guess this is also why there's, it was there was able to be this kind of merging between Yoruba and Catholicism in a sense, because they were, yeah. they discovered these commonalities. 
Yeah, it is that. It is that. Yeah. Which, of course, is an echo of what happens with the for the Christianization of West, like Western Europe, like a thousand years previously. The saints, the pagan gods, get rebranded as saints, basically. I mean, the thing that the thing that gives me that gives me partly gives me pause on this is this idea that you know the slave owners would would ban drums effectively in the southern states of 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 the United States. So I've just so clearly that the, the ban wasn't total. Drums did get into the United States, African drums, but I, I just, I just don't know how how that ended up playing out in terms of the you know this kind of rise of you know, music culture and, and what came to be known as jazz in New Orleans in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. Um, no, well, we've said this before, and it's a point I always have to make to students. I mean, I, I mean, it's pretty generally accepted. There are a gap, there's a period, in particular, the period in basically before emancipation and before reconstruction. There's a there's two or three generations where we just we don't have any direct evidence of what was going on musically. We don't know like what musical. We really don't know what musical practices black people in America were engaging in. Like it's, it does. It doesn't start to get written about by white or black commentators until a bit later. So we just don't know. We do. We can speculate and we can make informed speculations and inferences, but we just don't have the evidence really. Well, we do know that there was a different. There was a particular emphasis, though, on, for example, on the work song. I mean, Ted Joyer has written all those books on, on the um, evolution of the work song. So this was, you know, this was, you know, yeah, sung and chanted. Yeah, it true. was a. It was whereas I don't, from what I can understand, you you would not be able to kind of go and listen to sort of you know music in Cuba, pretty much in a bar in Cuba, without there probably being three percussionists. Um, yeah, so yeah, this is this yeah. is also yeah, about cool. emphasis. It's also okay, about yeah. a degree of emphasis, isn't it? And clearly, yes, clearly in Cuba, there was, there was uh, this was kind of highly venerated, you know, to the point where it was religiously instituted for the music making. Whereas, at least in the United States, we know that there was kind of opposition. Yeah, that's all correct. Yeah, and so by the early twentieth century, in Cuba, in other places as well, but very strikingly in Cuba, this is all produced a very distinctive set of musical styles and musical practices. And writers like history, cultural historians like Michael Denning and Timothy Brennan, who I've been reading, write very interestingly about the historical conditions that give rise to this distinctiveness. Brennan in particular, really interesting account, um, focusing on Cuba, is very interested in the way in which by the early, 19, by the early 20th century, You've got in Cuba, you've got the emergence of a very self-consciously distinctively Cuban music, which can already trait can or al- is already aware of itself as being about uh, at least a hundred years old. You know, what in what in Cuba, what is known as the Son Cubana, the Cuban sound, which will eventually sort of mutate into salsa. And um, um, Brennan, for example, very interestingly, he he identifies the emergence of the Son Cubana in the in the in its modern form in the 20s, he situates that alongside other forms of, of aesthetic modernism, like surrealism and, you know, avant-garde music. And it's an important reminder that, you know, the Latin America, there is a whole alternative history of global culture, which Latin Amer- various Latin American scholars have promoted, which says, well, really, you know, the idea that the experience of modernity, the idea that the experience of the modern world is really focused on the, the white Atlantic, you know, the Americas, you know, the, the, the British Empire and then its descendants in America, is just historically, like, chronologically wrong. 
So I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but it is always really worth taking a step back and, and remembering that just in terms of straight political history, the modern liberal nation state arguably is born more in Latin America than it is in Europe. I mean, it's usually said it's the French Revolution and the American Revolution that sort of give birth to it. But then there are comparable revolutions instituting what we would recognize as modern nation states all over Latin America in the early 19th century. In, and, the, and, you know, what Marx calls the bourgeois revolution, you know, the revolutionary process to, to replace feudal and aristocratic states with these modern modern states which are really dominated by the bourgeois of capitalist class. Arguably, the bourgeois revolution is, is is conducted and completed in Latin America before it is in Europe. Like in, It's really sort of extraordinary history. And of course, we don't learn about it at all. You, know, you don't learn about it much in the States. You don't learn about it here at all. So... So this, so it's important to stress, you know, as Paul Gilroy always does about the music of the Black Atlantic, that this is, you know, this is more, and Brennan does when he's talking about the emergence of Cuban music, that this is, this is, this isn't just about like so ancient tribal survivals. Mm. This is also about an absolute experience of modernity. It's worth noting that while still obviously a Spanish colony, you know, the Cuban Cuba grew, the Cuban economy grew uh, exponentially uh, from the late 18th century uh, right through um, the 19th and early 20th century. Um, so along, and you know, it was out of this that along along with Son, you have the musical genre, the habanera, uh, kind of emerged. Uh, this is probably reasonably early to mid nineteenth uh, century, uh, yeah, which features yeah. a syncopated bass and a orchestra that included rhythmic percussion. So, and one of the reasons um, that this uh, music is a, is able to develop is because, indeed, of the development of the economy. It's admittedly an economy that seems to be shifting from span, you know, from being dominated by Spain to one that's clearly being dominated by the United States. Uh, is worth you know we need to sort of note that the influence of the United States on Cuba was kind of first of all it's very proximate I mean I think it's I can't remember if it's maybe uh, don't want to get this wrong but uh, you know just a matter of 100 or 200 miles maybe from from Cuba to to Miami I think Um, so there's there's that Um, but there's also the way in which baseball uh, quickly quickly became the uh, this incredibly popular sporting culture uh, in Cuba by the 1870s. Baseball became the most favourite sport, I think, in Cuba. Uh, Bacardi rum also kind of emerged as an alternative, Cuban alternative to sort of Jamaican rum. Uh, and that Bacardi bat on Bacardi rum became sort of Cuba's first internationally recognised kind of logo and product. Bats apparently are a common sight at night in, in Cuba. And also there was a quite a developed political consciousness as well. Um, so the first workers to develop, you know, in an organised way were cigar rollers. And they apparently would have, they were being read to in the factories to pass the tedium of their work. And they'd have literary works, dime novels, but also newspapers and political texts uh, read to them. So in 1866, the tobacco workers formed an association which is pretty early in terms of kind of labor organization. So it's still there's no Cuban nation yet, it's still a colony of Spain, but there's, you know, the idea of a Cuban identity, which is always kind of a, being um, experienced in a relationship to the kind of, you know, Spanish colonization and the kind of rising influence of, of uh, US uh, cultural and economic 
kind of influence and interest is kind of also uh, developing. There was this sort of 10-year war with Spain developed after Spain was uh, declared a republic in 1868, which prompted uh, Cubans to declare their own independence. And in this war from 1868 to 78, the United States actually sided with Spain uh, and it ended with, you know, Spain still in control and no end to slavery and uh, still no independence for Cuba. But it was in this whole situation of kind of rapid economic development that the Son and also the Habanera um, enjoyed widespread diffusion. And I think the Habanera sort of also kind of uh, had started to have some international influence as well. Uh, and then in 18, just to kind of because this story of the, like, the relationship with the United States becomes so incredibly important, obviously. In 1898, the United States actually invaded Cuba to supposedly help the country uh, free itself from Spanish colonial rule. Um, but this was, you know, Ned Sublet, but also other commentators note that this was just a blatant territorial grab. Uh, and it resulted in something known as the Platt, Platt Amendment that paved the way for American businesses to dominate Cuba. And in 1899, the United States established a military government in Cuba. So the, the the kind of you know the running of the country switched from Spain to the United States, and Cubans were kind of almost entirely left out of this equation. They'd been fighting their own war with the Spanish only to have the American, you know, the United States uh, slip in. So there then follows, I think you refer to it, Gem, as this kind of there's this there's this period of you know of U.S. rule. They appoint governors, they dominate the Cuban economy, and yet this is also an economy that's kind of in love with baseball, American cars, jazz music is beginning to, you know, enter Havana. There's a sort of thriving night culture. Uh, Havana is the kind of, you know, effect becomes this sort of, you know, one of the most favoured sorts of holiday destinations for Americans and, and other tourists. And it's a place of clubs and bars and casinos and hotels and live music seven nights a week. It's the home of the of the world, the Tropicana Club, which is kind of world famous. And it's in this setting that there's, you know, this this advanced storm of music making that we've already touched on that draws on these, you know, uh, different traditions is able to kind of generate a kind of a paying public as well as the kind of, you know, the, re- the religious, uh, the religions that also kind of support the music. So it was here as well that the rumba uh, kind of starts to take starts to take root in the in the late nineteenth century, um, and this was a secular genre of Cuban music involving uh, involved dance and percussion and song, and um, it was a, it's quite interesting the rumba. Um, it was it was traditionally performed by poor workers of African descent. Uh, in the streets and the courtyards. And it sort of remains one of Cuba's most characteristic forms of music and dance. It involves vocal improvisation, uh, elaborate dancing, polyrhythmic drumming uh, as being core to its style. And um, central to the instrumentation is the, are the claves, two hard wooden sticks that are struck against each other, as well as the, these series of uh, three uh, Congo drums, the quinto, the tres dos, and the tumba, or the salador. Uh, if I'm pronouncing those correctly. So I thought we should actually listen to a bit of rumba. So this is uh, Conjunto Cubavana, Rumba en el Patio. Dice así, 
This track uh, was recorded sometime between 1944 and 47, so a bit later, but this, I believe, was the first time that the rumba was recorded. One of the things that I was really struck by when kind of doing a little bit of initial reading about the rumba was that, um, is the way in which it didn't gain uh, national popularity um, or recognition uh, until the 1950s in Cuba. Uh, and this is because it was seen as a kind of, you know, a dance of, you know, working class or people who are living in uh, the working classes or people who are living in, in poverty. And it was in particular after the Cuban Revolution of 1959 that it became institutionalized. Up until then, it had been relatively marginalized. So Ned Sublet notes of the rumba that despite its kind of obvious African character, uh, the rumba, like the blues, isn't a conservation of another land's music. Uh, in other words, you, you, you couldn't go to Africa and hear the rumba anywhere, even if you could go to Africa and hear some kind of sounds that remind you of the rumba. Love is the Message, a podcast about music, counterculture, parties and politics with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. So all of this kind of leads us up to the beginnings of what we call Afro-Cuban jazz, which has been this kind of incredibly influential music, uh, including, I know, for, for both of us. It sort of comes on the back of, of, a, of this period where, uh, you know, Cuba is sort of a form of supposed Cuban, you know, a new form of Cuban government that's heavily influenced by the United States has introduced the Various people who end up holding office of president are usually closely allied to the Americans. They represent American economic interests. They also sort of end up sort of becoming heavily involved quite often with uh, the Italian American mafia and the kind of the, and the uh, and night world. And it's into this situation that one of them, who's this young sergeant known as Fulgencio uh, Batista, uh, who is supported by the United States, um, ends up leading in 1934 a, a loose anti-government coalition of, of right-wing civilian and military elements that over, overthrows what was, you know, a potentially progressive uh, provisional government that had briefly come to power. This was in 1934. I mean, I think right. there's... So Batista. this is precise, this is just completely contemporaneous with the similar things happening in Spain. The Spanish, the over the right, yeah, the right yeah, wing junta overthrowing a, a progressive elected government. Yeah, and also, I guess eventually, you know, the rise of fascism as well in in Italy and yes, yeah, and Germany as well. So yeah, um, I mean, here this is you know here Batista is supported by it was was supported by the United States, um, but. But there's so we're in this period of there's there's uh, corrupt there's political corruption um, there's you know uh, economic corruption Cubans are often not being uh, directly supported by the government effectively certainly not uh, the working classes uh, and the ex-slave and particularly the ex-slave population uh, but there's also a period there is there's this kind of way in which Cuba has got growing production. Uh, in particular, around sugar, uh, there's growing. There are growing areas of prosperity, and this feeds this feeds a nightlife uh, that employs an awful lot of musicians. And it was in this setting 
that we see the emergence of uh, Afro-Cuban jazz, uh, which was the earliest form of Latin jazz, which effectively mixes Afro-Cuban clave-based rhythms with with jazz harmonies and and improvisations. Um, And the key figure in this is uh, Machito. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Do you know if I am? Is it Machito or Machito? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. So uh, anyway. Neither neither of us really speak Spanish, so apologies for that. Yeah. Anyway, Machito or Machito is born in uh, was born in 1909 uh, and grew up in Havana. Was pr- primarily raised by uh, the parents of a, of his foster sister, who would also later on perform with him. Uh, he became a professional musician uh, and played in ensembles in Havana 1928 to 37. So in this period we're now talking about. But in 1937, as was happening with many Cuban musicians, actually, uh, sort of went to live in, in in New York City. Obviously, there was no this was this was pre-embargo, and musicians were you know following their noses in terms of where musical opportunities were available. And in 1940, he formed the Afro-Cubans, uh, which would rehearse on 110th Street in Harlem, uh, and a year later uh, took on the Cuban-born musician Mario Bowser as his musical director and uh, I just play a quick a quick early hit that they recorded in 1941 uh, which is called Sopa de Pichon uh, just means pigeon soup let's have a listen to that Yeah, so pigeon soup is, a, I believe, a Puerto Rican joke about nearly starving as an immigrant when you arrive in New York City, um, just not being able to put food on the table. So that song references uh, that Puerto Rican joke. Um, but the first, well, it's what's sometimes thought of as the first Afro-Cuban jazz piece to be based uh, in with the clave was recorded in 1943. Uh, and there's one particular track called Tanga. Tanga, Buroboya! So Machito or Machito uh, and his Cuban, Afro-Cubans effectively became the first band to combine jazz techniques with Afro-Cuban rhythms on a, on a consistent basis. And they gave this kind of sound and it's kind of, uh, you know, it's identifiable sounds and influenced, you know, numerous musicians uh, in their wake, um, including uh, some of the leading lights of, of you know, American jazz, uh, including Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, Charlie Parker and also Stan Kenton. So just to bring in Dizzy Gillespie just briefly, um, Dizzy Gillespie collaborated in 1947 with Chano Pozo, and that deepened the kind of this development of Afro-Cuban jazz on the East Coast. 
Chando Ponzo is a, was a Cuban Congo drummer, dancer, composer, and, and choreographer. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie had already kind of noted, uh, at least for himself, how the outlawing of drums in the United States had taken away this one of the key forms of, you know, African-Americans being able to express themselves and says so they indeed, as a result, started in the field singing, clapping their hands and hitting the hoe in the ground in the rhythm at the same time. This is what Dizzy, this is Dizzy Gillespie quotes. And Dizzy Gillespie says, from, you know, this practice of hitting the hoe in the ground to create the rhythm, uh, we became monorhythmic. Uh, and his solution to becoming monorhythmic uh, was indeed to sort of begin to hook up with uh, Cuban musicians. Um, and his collaboration uh, with Chano Ponzo includes a 1947 track called Manteca. <laughs> According to Dizzy Gillespie on this particular record, it was Pozo who composed the introduction and the A section. And uh, according to Gillespie, this would have, this this part of it was really strictly Afro-Cuban. But it was Gillespie who ended up writing the bridge. Uh, so it was intended to be an eight-bar bridge. Ended up becoming uh, a third, a sixteen-bar bridge because Dizzy Gillespie hadn't managed to resolve it by the end of eight bars. And it was this bridge that gave Manteca a particularly jazz harmonic structure uh, and to a certain extent uh, set the piece apart from Tanga um, of a, f- a few years earlier, uh, which was more modal in its, in its structure. Um, anyway, uh, what we have here is the, uh, the beginnings of this kind of, of, of Afro-Cuban jazz taking root uh, with Cuban musicians central, but a lot of... Uh, uh, quite a lot of this music happening in New York City, uh, as would increasingly go on to be the case in the latter part of the 20th century. Well, the 50s is when, arguably, uh, Cuban music really explodes into global prominence because that, this is the period when the Mambo it's, you can trace back to the 30s and you can trace back in you know and and you can trace back further in it into its roots in the song cubano but, but the mambo has this quite energetic music which is a very obviously a fusion of elements coming from directly from cuban music like song cubano and the emerging big band swing jazz styles coming out of the united states and it's a huge phenomenon. A mambo becomes a huge phenomenon, and arguably in the first half to the mid fifties, I mean, arguably it's the most popular kind of musical style in, in the United States. So, the um, the figure who's really associated with it is the with its emergence and popularization is the Cuban band leader Perez Prado, and I guess a good example of sort of commercial mambo was. The hit record made by him and his band, released in '55, I think, called "Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White," which was a number one hit in both the United States and the United Kingdom in '55. So we could hear a bit of that. <laughs> Thank you. 
And the thing with Mambo is you really, I mean, in some ways it does really, focusing on the fact that this these forms of Latin jazz is quite energetic and, and quite percussive in, at times, forms of Latin jazz are so popular uh, in the States and in other parts of the world uh, in the 50s. It does sort of... Um, it does colour, it does change the impression that some people often have of 50s popular music these days, which is that it was, it was all just crooners and their female equivalents until rock and roll came along and shook it up, which is, frankly, that is a narrative that, that, that still gets circulated and promoted in some context. And it's... Um, I remember actually, I remember even as a kid, like you'd occasionally see these old black and white films from that period that feature all these people that are dancing to, you know, Latin music, sort of dancing and singing. And it already sort of, I remember thinking it really didn't fit with the idea that you got from, you know, from America, from kind of rock and roll, nostal- from the rock and roll nostalgia industry, which really gets going from the early 70s with things like uh, George Lucas's film, American Graffiti. The idea that pre-rock and roll, like American popular music, was just incredibly staid and arrhythmic, and it it was just some sort of you know, descendant of Gorian chant or German Lieder or something. So, what the thing that happens with Mambo? One of the really interesting things that happens with Mambo in the fifties is that the group of artists who we've sort of referred to before a little bit, that we've alluded to before, based in New York, who become associated with Mambo a number of whom are not of Cuban descent, but Puerto Rican. Uh, but they really bring this Caribbean, uh, this Afro-Caribbean, um, Afro-Latin percussive sensibility to the fore in their music. And probably one of the, be- the most best-known examples of that in the 1950s would be Tito Puente. You know, still his music is still very popular today. He was a beloved figure up until his death in 2000. And... Tito Puente is a really interesting figure in the 50s because he's he is known as not just a band lead, as both a band leader and a percussionist. So this is a very rare in- example of an American musician who is known as a percussionist and as a virtuoso percussionist and also as a band leader. Very unusual in jazz or rock or any form. And uh, we could hear this track, uh, 1957 track, by Tito, Tito Puente and his band called Night Ritual. So there's a bit of a track with a name that, I mean, that could easily be a name for a title for a heavy psychedelic underground disco track of the mid to late 70s, Night Ritual. And um, and there's no question that that, that, stuff, that kind of music would really come to inform sort of disco and dance music in the in the. 70s, and I'm always interested in the in the sort of empirical question from a DJing point of view of what is the oldest piece of music I can find that I think I could get away with playing to a contemporary dance crowd that wasn't wasn't there for just some some highly specialised sort of vintage music. And I think I mean that might and uh, and the examples I come up with are always either sort of Brazilian or 
New York or New Yorkan um, sort of Latin jazz, Brazilian jazz or New Yorkan Latin jazz from the early '60s, maybe. But I think probably the um, probably this Tito Puente from the mid mid '50s, I think, would probably count because the percussive sensibility, the combination of the percussive intensity with a sort of somewhat jazz a jazz influenced kind of melodic um, you know melodic uh, factor with with the way that the brass is used in particular uh, makes it very sort of listenable and danceable and it, and and it sounds like a form which you know it still sounds kind of contemporary it doesn't sound archaic so it's really and it's really interesting to think about this from a contemporary vantage point because you know for i think it was you know because it was for our cohort for people exactly our age they when we were growing up so big band music swing music latin jazz mambo you know remember it was like the epitome of sort of archaic cheesiness you know it was sort of we thought we I, i always thought of it as something that was just sort of belonged to a completely different world and you know, it had. I guess if you grew up in a sort of post-punk environment in which sort of your musical reference points were either kind of punk and post-punk rock music, or they were sort of early electronica, then you know the lushness and the the, the slightly camp showiness and the extravagance of this kind of music just seemed sort of archaic and embarrassing. But in a in a post-rave, you know, post-disco revival, you know, universe, this stuff actually now it's it sounds totally fresh and it sounds like some of the most important music of the 20th century. Yeah, I think it's so you're you're right. And it's uh, I think if we properly often identify uh this kind of mambo culture with you know a certain sense of um superficial exoticism and couples dressing up for the night and engaging in a it's it's very it's a kind of an old style kind of dance culture that clearly disco and then you know house music and rave culture and and other forms kind of broke with um but you know the the music kind of survives more than some of the social practices perhaps associated with that music too well, also, of course, that that are those sentiments that you've just expressed and that I was sort of expressing were, are not unique to our perspective now. That was also the attitude of many of the revolutionaries who were about to make Cuba a world centre of resistance to international colonialism and capitalism. They also were going to hear Mambo as maybe a kind of fairly degenerate form of bourgeois affectation that really serious people that wouldn't want to waste their time on yeah i mean it was it was designed to appeal and it kind of it did have its own commercial clearly its own commercial successes and it's interesting that you know when the revolution came it would indeed be the the rumba which was had had less less glamour attached to it It was more around kind of music that you hear in back streets and, and sort of you know yards that kind of became popularized under under you know communist or socialist and then communist cuba um, but this, so, but the, but the energy that the, 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 I think you're right. You're absolutely right, though. There's, there's a, there's something quite, you know, sonically advanced. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's always about. It's part. Well, it's not always about, but it's partly about the coming, the coming together of co- sometimes complex melodic structures um, and harmonic structures and chord structures with, you know, complex, uh, you know, a r- rhythmic patterns. Uh, and it's Cuba that's kind of. Uh, this particular point is is a 
apparently as advanced, if not more advanced than anywhere else in the world, uh, in, in bringing these two elements together alongside, I guess, the sort of what's going on uh, in, New, in New Orleans. And of course, all of that, or what you've just said, and also what I was just saying, that that's partly why I think some of the most interesting writers and thinkers about the politics of music in America over the past 20 years, people like Sublette, like Brennan, like Denny, mm. they have all seen it as necessary to kind of go back and tease out the complex mm. relationship between this clearly advanced and significant music and its historical conditions of emergence, and then the, the politics of the revolution that would have such a complicated relationship to it. And when we start, when we were just getting ready to record the episode, uh, Tim, you rightly predicted that this time we would only get as far, we wouldn't even get up to the point of talking about the revolution. <coughs> We'd only get up to the pre-revolutionary situation. Well, there's um, one more thing. I think we can throw in one more thing before we talk about the revolution, maybe. We, I think we can do the revolution next time. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, just, let's just talk about yeah, this. Talk about one more, give talk one, about one more little thing. pre-revolutionary music, which is, um, yeah, just this sort of, I think, I don't know if this is the culmination of what we've been talking about so far, but it's this release in 1957 on Panart Records of the first of a series of albums called uh, Cuban Jam Sessions um, that seems to become particularly pivotal. Uh, to the rise of Latin music in New York City in the in the, the decade that followed the 1960s. I mean, the backdrop to this is that uh, you know Batista had secured power. The second period of his presidency, uh, beginning in 1952, followed a U.S.-backed military coup. So attempts at kind of you know uh, some form of kind of you know constitutional elections uh, were you know more or less ended. Um, uh, is, uh, Batista uh, ended up suspending the constitution uh, and revoking uh, many political liberties, including the right to strike. Um, he aligned himself with the uh, owners of the largest sugar plantations and also presided over this eco- increasingly stagnating economy that had an increasing kind of gap between the rich and the poor. Cuba, by this point, was sort of 70% owned by, by foreigners. Uh, including most of its arable land and a good portion of the, of the sugar industry, uh, and Batista, in the meantime, was kind of dealing with these, kind of, you know, becoming increasingly close to the Amer- American mafia, uh, who controlled drug, drugs, gambling, and prostitution businesses in Havana. Um, so, you know, Batista kind of dealt with growing discontent by sort of establishing tighter censorship, etc. Through violence, even torture, and, and I believe some public executions, so Cuba was falling into decay. Effectively, I mean, this is all a precursor, effectively, to the revolution that we're going to come on to talk about uh, now in the next episode. But it was in this moment, despite this kind of this, you know, this kind of the, all of these tensions uh, running through the island, that in, in 1957. Um, the owner of this label, Panart Records, who was Ramon Sabat, decided to release these Cuban jam sessions. And in doing them, he recreated the ambience effectively of a jam session or a descarga uh, in the studio. Uh, and jam sessions were common in Havana. Musicians were sort of always getting together after hours. We've seen from, you know, both from public entertainment and also religious practice ceremonies, that there was an awful lot of music happening in 
in, in Kilgrills, integrated into sort of social life and religious life. Uh, and uh, Sabat took this aesthetic of musicians just, uh, you know, jamming uh, by, and, and took it onto record, inviting some of Havana's finest players um, into the recording studio, uh, including the bassist Israel Cachao Lopez, who would go on to, sorry, Lopez Valdez, uh, go on to be a very influential musician, uh, Trez player Nino Rivera and the pianist uh, Lulio Gutierrez. Um, so it's interesting that this, you know, is in this kind of transit on the cusp of this, you know, hugely uh, influential moment of the Cuban Revolution uh, in 1957. This 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 album that goes on to become so influential is released. So let's have a listen to uh, one of the tracks uh, from the first volume of the Cuban Jam Sessions, and this is Rolando Aguilo y su conjunto. Uh, recording Descarga Roger. Stuart Baker, who was uh, the head of Soul Jazz, who's uh, released uh, with Giles Peterson a couple of really good Cuban compilations. Notes of, uh, I think in the liner notes to one of those uh, compilations, um, the New York Latin musicians would go on to study uh, these Cuban jam sessions releases as if they were the Bible. And I suppose one of the stories we're going to come to is, you know, there's a story of the revolution and there's also obviously the story of what happens to music under the revolution or during this period of the revolution. And then the story of how we will soon be getting to of how New York City ends up becoming this hugely important uh, city uh, base for for effectively Afro-Cuban music, uh, in particular in the 1960s onwards. So these Cuban jam sessions seem to kind of lay an important platform or make an important contribution to, to that development. Okay, great. Well, we'll carry on next time, I think. That was, uh, you know, there's a lot to get into here. Um, well, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for uh, for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, thanks to people who've been re- rating the show and the uh, the podcast apps. Those five star ratings are keeping coming, and they're really helpful. Uh, if you've got any spare cash, please support the show on Patreon. Uh, last week we released the second of our heavy dub theory episodes, where we really got into it on the politics of the voice and the relevance of Jacques Derrida's philosophy to thinking about the significance of dub. Uh, that was a lot of fun to do. And we will, you will hear, we won't really see you. That's a complete affectation, but you will hear <laughs> us next time. So, <laughs> have a good week, Tim. Yeah, and you, Jim. Uh, thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.